Anyways, today we're continuing our series of a sermon called Dealing with Your Own Objections About God's Love for You. And um, we're going to do some quick review, uh, and then we're going to get into confronting your objections about God's love for you. So hopefully you remember um, last week's sermon. If you don't remember last week's sermon, or if you missed any part of it, you should go back and re-listen to it on our podcast we have a new podcast now, but we'll get into that later today. Um, but let's, let's do some real quick review. So last week, we, there were three main parts to the sermon. There was why it's important to deal with this, why we need to confront our objections about God's love for us, that is, because we do have them, we all have them, and they really affect our lives uh, in significant ways. They reflect, affect our relationship with God in like multiple areas. How well we worship him, how close we are to him, how much we trust God to influence the decisions we make in our lives, to lead our lives. And um, they affect how much we love God, how much we love others, how grace-based we lived, how much we understand the gospel. And... Um, and God wants us to know his love because he created us to know him. But one thing I do want to mention that I didn't mention last time that I kind of wanted to, not only does God want us to know him, and I pointed out John 17, 3, but I think it's, it shows specifically that God wants us to see him as an affectionate father um, by what he says in Galatians 4, 6. So Paul writing to the Galatians um, and chapter 4, verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent you the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Abba is a, is a word for father, but it's specifically a very affectionate term for a father. And like, God wouldn't send us a lying spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't a lying spirit. If God sends us his spirit crying, Abba, Father, that's proof that he wants us to see him as an affectionate father, which is proof he is an affectionate father since he's not a lying God. But since he wants us to know his love, it's important we pursue knowing it. Then we talked a little bit about... Um, how God, there is a difference between God's love for his children versus his love for not his children. Um, can we go to the slide for that? Um, yeah, God acts in ways of favor towards his children that he doesn't act towards everyone. The, the biggest difference is that God's children aren't under the wrath of God, and unbelievers who haven't received Christ's gift of salvation are under the wrath of God. God still loves unbelievers, but it's a different love from the love he has for his redeemed children. And, um, and then the last thing we talked about, which is very important and will make a difference for today's sermon, is how we need to see God's love, specifically three key elements um, that kind of make up the big picture of God's love. We need to understand these three elements and see them to really see the 
totality of God's love for us. And those are self-sacrificial desire for our well-being, a fatherly enjoyment of us as people, or a fatherly enjoyment of you as a person, and a desire to have personal fellowship with you. And uh, this is God's love for his children, and for God's children, all three of these are unconditional. And if you missed this part of the sermon, please go back and listen to it. Um, And these are greater than we could know. So now we get to get into today's sermon. So before we start, I wanted to give some quick notes on just our thinking in general. Um, So the main part of what we're going to be doing today is I have a list of like eight common objections or eight thoughts people might have within themselves that would cause them to struggle with God's love or to not see it. And I'm going to try to give some weapons or arguments to fight against those with. And we talked last time a bit about how your thinking affects more of you than you think it does. Your thinking doesn't just affect your thoughts, but it affects everything you do and your feelings and your spirit. So this is all going to be like very attacking bad thoughts with scripture based and it might not deal with everything because there is more to this struggle than your thoughts. Some of it might be struggle caused by demonic oppression, but we'll get into that a bit later in this series. But if you don't tackle the wrong thinking you have about God's love for you, even if you fix the other things that add to your struggle, you're not going to get over the struggle. It's just going to come back. You need to have right thinking about God's love for you. So if you, if you struggle with these objections, then, um, then you should really pay attention. But even if you don't struggle with them, you should still pay attention and take notes because I'm sure you know people who struggle with these. And if you don't, if you plan to go out evangelizing, you'll meet people who struggle with these. Probably half the people you'll meet struggle with half of these. And then another thing I wanted to mention is, so our wrong patterns of thinking are like strongholds in our mind. They're strongholds in a few ways. They, um, they're hard to overcome when we've been thinking in a wrong way for a long time. And they're also, they're built brick by brick. Like, we have this thought and that thought, this evidence or so-called evidence, that evidence of why I'm not a likable person or God doesn't love me because he allowed this to happen and that to happen. And it just builds up brick by brick, thought by thought, until it's a stronghold in your mind. And, um, and strongholds can be really hard to overcome. And that's sometimes why we struggle so much with ongoing issues, struggling with these types of things. But... Um, I wanted to mention 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Um, for, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion 
raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that kind of sets the frame for what we're doing in this sermon. We are taking every thought captive for the knowledge of God and obedience to Christ. And so, um, real quick, I want to define an objective or how we'll be dealing with it today. An objective you have about God's love for you is anything that would hinder you from believing or seeing one of the free elements of God's love for you, his desire for your well-being, his, um, his enjoyment of you as a person, or his desire to have fellowship with you. So an objective, can, an objection, not an objective, an objection can be something that hinders you from believing in any one of those three things. And also, just to make this effective, if these are things you struggle with, or if you just struggle with God's love in general, but you don't know whether or not you struggle with these, um, you know, pray that God would reveal to you the sources of your struggles and that he would reveal your thoughts to you. And try to pay attention throughout the week to the thoughts that you have and see if you think these things. You realize a lot about yourself and your heart and your thoughts by paying attention to what you think. You really miss a lot if you don't pay attention to what you think. It's very easy to do. All right, that being said, let's get into it. So the first one I have, um, the idea that God is disappointed with me. So I think there's, um, there's two main issues that kind of this comes from. God has higher standards for how righteous I am than I meet. Um, and then we'll get into a second one after we get into that one. God has higher standards for how much I do for his kingdom than I meet. So um, it's easy to think that God has you know, higher standards for how righteous we are. Because we're not righteous. Or we don't live righteously. You know, we all know that we sin frequently, and we sin willingly, and we sin on purpose. And God demands perfection. He wants, you know, you are to be holy as I am holy, perfect as I am perfect. So we read that, and it's easy to think, man, God must be really disappointed with me because I'm not perfect. But this is where the gospel has to be applied to every area of our thinking. And like this is a thought I struggle with a lot. And I've been like, like I said, paying attention to my thoughts more and thinking why do I think these things throughout the week because I struggle with this a lot. And like I've been seeing, man, the gospel and Christ's righteousness applied is not a concept I have applied throughout my thinking. There's just a lot of areas where I still think God's mad at me because I'm not perfect. And that's not a thought to have as a Christian. As someone to whom Christ's blood has been applied, that is not a thought that we should have. Because God's standard of perfection has been met, and that's the point of the gospel. 
You know, if God's standard of perfection has not been met, then he's beyond disappointed in you. <laughs> We're all in trouble if Christ didn't meet God's standard of perfection. God doesn't demand of you to be perfect because Christ is perfect for you. I actually got a text from Anvesh this week about a quote from a book he was reading. Um, the standard of a Christian is not perfection, it's repentance. And I would bother to say, sometimes I feel bad, like, well, I repented, but my repentance, it's not perfect because I keep doing it again. Your, repent- your repentance is never perfect. If it was actually perfect, you wouldn't sin again. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. So it's not even perfect repentance. It's just repentance. If you're a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit in you, no matter how many times you fail, you're still, you have Christ's righteousness applied to you and you need to have this permeate all of your thinking about how God thinks of you. Another thing I like to point out when talking about like God doesn't demand perfection from us because Christ has met that is I like to point out uh, Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It doesn't sound like on a practical standpoint he expects his children to be perfect. He expects us to trust him and to repent. And not even perfectly at that. I think that when we sin, God's about as disappointed in us as John Gray would be in Daniel Gray if John Gray were more patient than he already is. If you haven't been to the Grays for dinner at least five times, then go over to the Grays for dinner more. Because it's great to watch them with their kids. Like, like I mentioned earlier, God wants us to see him as an affectionate father. John Gray is an affectionate father. He's one of the best examples of a father that I've seen in person. Another thought that can be easy to have that's related to that is God has higher standards for me for what I accomplish for his kingdom. And that's very similar, and you should remember God doesn't expect you to be perfect. God expects repentance. But I also like to point out for this, God does not need you. And I love to read Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the, for the world and its fullness are mine. Like, yeah, God wants to use you for his kingdom, but God does not need you. I don't think he's, he has no need or reason to be disappointed if you don't do a lot for his kingdom. You should strive to do a lot for his kingdom, but if you don't, 
he has no reason to be disappointed because he doesn't need you to. God will be glorified in you one way or another because he'll be glorified in all people one way or another, even those who never repent and never do anything for him. But the main thing um, that I want to really focus on and that will, will come up throughout this message is that God's standard of perfection has been met. And then the last thing I want to talk about, fighting against this idea that, you know, God is disappointed with me. Um, just remember, like we talked about last week, God has a type of unconditional delight in you as his child. Um, we saw that in the prodigal son. We're not going to go back and read it again because we don't have time for that. But that's also like, that's part of how God designed fathers by nature. Like it's, it's something that can, can be corrupted, but it's something that's hard to corrupt. The only fathers who don't delight in their children are fathers who have let their selfishness get to them so much that they don't want to have time for their kids. God built unconditional, a level of unconditional enjoyment into fathers by nature as part of his image, even though it gets corrupted. All right, objection number two. This is an easy one to think. God gets sick of putting up with my stupidity slash sin. So the first thing I would like to say about this is just to read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the nature of love, which God's love and what our love should be. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. That means God is not irritable. God's not in heaven or wherever. He's omnipresent. Like, oh my goodness, Josiah sinned again. I'm so sick of putting up with him. God's not an irritable God especially not in his attitude towards his children. So I, I really think with all eight of these, all eight of them to some degree have to do with God's legal standard has been met. And that really does have to apply to all of our thinking. God's standard for righteousness has been met in Christ. I like how the NASB um, translates 1 Corinthians 13.5. It says, love is not provoked. It does not keep an account or a list of wrongs suffered. God knows I sin every day, but he's not keeping a long list of it. Thank God. The next point, um, and you know the scripture should be enough, but our hearts always have more reasons, um, you know, why this objection is true. So I like to have multiple reasons against each objection. So we're just going to go on. Um, something else to use against that thought. God knows sanctification is a process because he designed for it to be a process. He expects it to be a process because he chose for it to be one. 
He could just perfectly sanctify you instantly, and he will either at Christ's second coming or when you die, but he could do that now, but he chose not to. He chose for sanctification to be a process. And it's a process that he doesn't feel defeated about. We might feel defeated about our sanctification, but God doesn't. God knows that God's going to take care of it, and he's fine with it being a process. God is never defeated by our sin. God never feels defeated about our sin. God has more patience for our sanctification than we do. And not just that, but God knows all the sins and stupid things that we're all going to do before we ever do them. You never surprise God. No matter how stupid the things I do are, God knew I was going to do it. My wife might be surprised, but, but God is not. The third objection, I think this is a very common one, and it's, it's a very disrupting thought to have. It really hinders seeing God's love for you. Um, but the idea that God just loves me because he has to or because he said he would, because he promised to, or that he does so begrudgingly. All right, I have multiple reasons that you can use against this, multiple ways to arm yourself to fight against thoughts and to destroy the stronghold. Um, the first thing, God does not enjoy the idea of begrudging love. God enjoys love. That's why he created people who would love and commands them to love, because he enjoys it. But God doesn't enjoy begrudging love. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't say God loves a begrudging giver. <laughs> or God is willing, God is, um, you know, loves a, a tolerant giver, or an I guess so giver, I suppose if I have to giver. God loves a cheerful giver. If it's not willingly, if it's not cheerful, it's not even love. Anything that's begrudgingly done isn't love. But God enjoys love. It's part of his nature. Also, let's take a look at Matthew 18.35. Um, this is Jesus at the end of the parable about the servant who would not forgive the other servant after he was forgiven like $10 billion. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It doesn't say if you forgive your brother, you know, with your lips only, or if you forgive your brother, like, but don't really mean it. If you forgive your brother from your heart, God doesn't want begrudging forgiveness. Sometimes we start there because sanctification is a process, um, and you have to get to, you have to start somewhere. But, but God doesn't delight in begrudging anything, not begrudging love, because begrudging love isn't love. 
the second main reason to not think that God loves us begrudgingly, um, and one that's helped me in the past month or two, is that God doesn't do anything begrudgingly. And if you really think about it, it's a very silly idea that God does anything begrudgingly. It's not something that there should even be room to think. God does whatever he pleases because he's God. So let's take a look at that, because it's throughout the scriptures. We're only going to do like a, a very teeny tiny survey. There's many more scriptures that say this. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In Daniel 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according um, to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, what have you done? So I really like that first one, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. If God didn't please to forgive you and to die for you, he wouldn't. If God didn't please to put up with your sin, he wouldn't do it. And you can say, oh, but you know, he promised to, so now he has to. God's an all-knowing God. God would know if he were to get sick of putting up with you, and he would not promise to do so. <laughs> God... It, it means that when it says it, God does whatever he pleases. If he loves you, he pleases to love you. There should be no room to think that God loves us begrudgingly. It's an easy thought to have, but there should be no room to think that. God does what God wants because he's God. No human can first force God to do anything, and no circumstance can force God to do anything because God is sovereign over all circumstance. He can't be, well, I had to because of this. No, God makes the circumstances what he wants them to be. God's never forced to do anything. When God chose to die for you and to forgive you throughout all time for everything you ever do, he did it because you want to, and there is no logical room to make any argument for otherwise. There's no reasonable way to think otherwise. If God does it, God wanted to do it. The last thing I have to say about this is just Jeremiah 32, verses 40 through 41. Um, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, um, talking about the covenant he will make, the future covenant, which he has made with the church. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. God rejoices in doing good to us no matter how many times we sin against him with all his heart and soul. I really like that verse. All right, objection number four. 
I'm just too sinful of a person for God to like me. Kind of like sinful in nature. Because, you know, we're all sinful in what we do. But, I mean, I feel like it's easy sometimes, especially when you're studying the gospel a lot, to just like, I mean, and we have to come to see how bad our sin nature is. And, um, and we have to come to see that it's really, really bad. But if you come to see that without seeing God's grace, you'll just end up at number four, I'm just too sinful of a person for God to like me. Which would be true were it not for Christ and God's grace. So we need to apply that to our thinking. So first off, uh, you're not more or less sinful in nature than anybody else on earth, and it's wrong to think so. If you think you're less sinful than other people, that's definitely a problem, and that's pride. And if you think you're more sinful than other people in your nature, that can also be a form of pride, but it depends. But either way, it's wrong. No one is more or less sinful than anybody else in their nature. The second point I have is just throughout the scriptures, like, yes, we're all sinful to the point where it's amazing that God accepts us, let alone would die for us or gives anything to us. But throughout the scriptures, as part of the nature of God, God in all his holiness loves wretched sinners in spite of their sin, in spite of our sin. And God fully is fully aware of how sinful we are, more than we are. Like, we start studying, like, how sinful we are, or we learn by life experience, and then we're like, oh, wow, this is really, really bad. But it's worse than you think. But God knows how bad it is, more than you do. But he still chose to die for you. And I really love how, um, as an example, Jesus touches lepers. So I think... You know, God uses word pictures a lot. John Gray is going to continue to talk about that. I really like his series on word pictures. But so God made leprosy as an image for sin or as a word picture. And I think like Jesus could have healed lepers without touching them, but he didn't want to. Jesus wanted to make a statement. Jesus touches lepers. Sin doesn't stop the holiest being in the universe from loving sinners. God touches lepers. Again, it's a word image. He does it on purpose. He does it to make a point. And again, the core issue of the idea that we're too sinful or I'm too sinful for God to like me. The core issue is that Jesus met the legal standard. Jesus met God's standard of perfection and it's been applied to you if you're a child of God. And almost all of our issues, a, a good deal of them come out of that not being fully applied to our thinking. Once we realize that what the gospel is on a deeper level and imputed righteousness. We need to like rethink all our thoughts about God and our relationship with him and apply the idea of imputed righteousness to those thoughts. 
All right, number five. This one, I think this one's an easy one to struggle with, but that, you know, really is very hindering. Uh, God has mustered up some appreciation for me, or like he enjoys me, but deep down he knows the truth that I'm lame and there's no reason to like me. And he only likes me because he's like my father. And, uh, and for some reason he comes up with this unreasonable appreciation for me. But deep down he knows the truth that I'm not likable. So I think that's what this issue is. It's thinking that like I'm not really likable or enjoyable as a person but God musters up some appreciation for me or has some fake appreciation or some appreciation he feels but he knows is unreasonable. And this is something I've struggled with and, um, and I was really glad when I realized kind of what this was and why I struggled with it. And for me it was part of the reason I thought it was... Um, Kind of like the whole God forgets our sins thing. God knows we sin. He just, you know, pushes it out of his mind in theory. But that's a, a bad understanding of the idea that God forgets our sins. Um, so just to give some context, I'll read one of the passages where it talks about God remembering our sins no more, because there's a lot of them. So let's take a quick look for context at Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each um, his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So I feel like it's easy to read that and think, well, God just kind of lies to himself about it. But God doesn't lie to himself about anything. God intellectually remembers our sin. It doesn't mean he'll intellectually forget our sins because God's the God of all truth. He never lies to himself about anything. He is fully aware of all truth and whatever he believes is truth. God doesn't see any value in believing a lie. God believes no lies and he definitely doesn't lie to himself. So, when I think about the I will remember their sins no more or forget their sins, I think it's kind of a, it doesn't mean literally, but I like to explain it with a kind of a way the words used elsewhere when it talks about people forgetting about God. So Psalm 106, 19 through 21 says, um, if I can find it on my paper. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their God, their Savior, and the, things that, the great things he had done in Egypt. I don't think they intellectually forgot who God was. I don't think they would have like remembered one day, and oh my goodness, I forgot about God. Like They knew. They for, forgot in their hearts. They didn't care. It didn't mean anything to them. God is fully intellectually aware of all of our sins. But they don't, because of Christ's righteousness, they don't mean anything to him. It's the same idea. So 
So you have to, if this is something you struggle with, you have to at least get to the point where you can say, I might not know why God likes me, but I know God doesn't lie to himself. Therefore, I must be a likable person. God doesn't create unlikable people. If you're a child of God, then he likes you at the core. We might not all always act likable, but we all have the potential to. But God, as his children, likes us, so we are likable. And God's the most reasonable being in the universe. You can't think to yourself, or you shouldn't, you can't anymore after thinking this through, say, well, God likes me, but there's really no good reason to, because I'm unlikable. God's more reasonable than you are. And if God likes you, then there's reason to, whether you believe it or not. God knows what's likable about you more than you or anyone else does because he's the one that made you. For me, this is something that I feel like got in the way of me seeing God's love for a long time. Because I kind of grew up like without friends and moving around, around a lot and having languages barriers and... Um, and I just felt like I never had friends anywhere and that made me feel like no one liked me and that I'm unlikable as a person. And then that made me struggle even more than I already did with God's love. But as a child of God, God likes you and God doesn't lie to himself about it. God's not making stuff up. God's more reasonable than you are, so you can't say God's doing this without reason. All right, objection number six. If God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to suffer as much as he has or does or will, because <laughs> he will. <laughs> All right, so there's a number of ways we should attack this. But the first one that I like to point out is, so even if you struggle with the idea, well, God really doesn't love me because he allows me to suffer like this, hopefully you believe God loved Christ. I mean, Christ is God. That'd be really weird if he didn't. But God allowed Christ to suffer a lot, like a lot, a lot. More than you have. You haven't been crucified. God loved Christ like there, there's no reason to, there could be no problems in the Father's love for Christ. That'd be a ridiculous thought. Um, but God caused Christ to suffer. He commanded him to suffer. And it was for Christ's good because God has the love of a father and sometimes fathers have to do hard things for the ultimate well-being of their children. God the Father definitely did with Christ. I don't think it was easy to command your son to be crucified. But God allows his children to suffer for their ultimate well-being. Second thing, um, 
God limits all the bad things that ever happened to you, and he promises to work them together for your good in the end. So first we're going to look at how God limits all the things that happen to you. The first one is just by nature of God's sovereignty. If God's sovereign and everything that happens, God has either caused to happen or allowed to happen, then he has at least in that sense limited everything that's ever happened to you because he's in control of it. But there's two verses that I think are interesting where like before tempting someone or causing harm to someone, Satan had to get God's permission to do so. So let's take a quick look at Job 1.12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All the things that happen to you, God is intimately aware of all the circumstances in your life. And anything bad that ever happens to you, God is limiting. He's fully aware of it. He's more aware of what's actually happening in your life than you are. And he limits everything. All the bad things, that is. Also, Luke 22, 31, and 32. Um, this is Peter talking to Simon right before... Um, no, Peter does not talk to Simon. This is Christ talking to Peter. <laughs> right before Christ's crucifixion. <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, you may strengthen your brothers. So it, it would seem from this passage, or to me the implication is, though it doesn't show it explicitly in scripture, that Satan had to ask for permission to tempt Peter, and God gave him permission, and because God has, you know, a big long-term plan, God does allow sin to happen, but, um, but it would seem Satan has to ask permission. Either way, by God's sovereignty, God limits all the negative things that happen to us. Because he's fully in charge of them. And since he has, he's allows them for our ultimate good, he wouldn't allow more bad to happen to you than is necessary for ultimate good to be achieved. He's not willy-nilly about what he allows into your life. All right, uh, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes with this verse, you might think, well, I wasn't really loving God today. Is this going to work out for my good? So it says, for those who love God, which if you read 1 John, you'll realize just means Christians. Christians love God, even if they don't do it every day. And also, for those called according to his purpose. It's saying those two groups of people are the same people. And if you're a Christian, you're called according to God's purpose. So it's saying for Christians, doesn't matter how good of a day you're having. Just period. All time, in general, always. God works all things together for your good as a Christian.
And I think we can really see through that, like, and through how God allowed Christ to suffer. God allows suffering for our well-being in the long term. Because he works all suffering together for our good. The way I understand this verse, he doesn't just work your suffering out for your good. He works all suffering out for your good. He works your neighbor's suffering out for your good. He, all things that happen ever, good or bad, work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Hmm. Running low on time. All right, if God real objection number seven, if God really loved me, he would end my struggle with this sin. So this is kind of similar to the last one, but a bit different. So God gives us the power to not sin. My first point about this is God always gives us the power to not sin, but we don't always take advantage of it. But we do think, you know, nonetheless, God could sanctify me perfectly or at least get me past this, so why doesn't he? But I feel like this question should be better understood as, since he does always, whether you believe it or not, or whether you use it or not, he always gives you the power to say no to the sin or to not sin. This question should be rephrased is why doesn't God deliver me from these temptations that I face frequently, that I face and frequently fail to? Because he does always, whether you believe it or not, give you the power to overcome them, whether or not you take advantage of that or see it. Um, so the real question is why God doesn't why doesn't God deliver me from these temptations? Uh, let's take a quick look at First Corinthians ten verse thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be, that you may be able to endure. So that reemphasizes the point. God always gives you the ability to say no. But also, he provides a way of escape. No temptation will last forever. Temptations do come back, but they won't last forever. There is a way of escape. Like... You know, I get tempted to eat more than I should when I'm hungry, but my hunger doesn't last forever. I get uh, tempted to be grumpy when I don't get enough sleep, but God eventually gives me more sleep. Temptations don't last forever, even if we wish God would deliver us from them sooner. Um, I also want to read related to this, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Uh, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So God's power is made perfect in weakness. God has chosen to not perfectly sanctify us today, even though he could. 
And ultimately, we have to come to accept that that's God's wisdom, and God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. God's not defeated by our sin, like we said earlier. We might get discouraged about our sanctification, but God's not defeated by it. And again, at the core of this issue is the fact that God has ordained sanctification to be a process and not instance. And he's right to do that because it shows his glory. Your sin is not the end of the world because God has conquered it. All right, last objection, number eight. Uh, the idea that God is distant or uninvolved in my life. So, kind of three points against this. Um, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Luke 12, 7 says, Jesus talking to the crowds, well, the disciples and the crowds, um, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. I think this shows God is intimately acquainted with every detail of your life. God is not emotionally distant. God thinks more about your life than you do. I've never counted the number of hairs on my head and I don't personally care to. <laughs> it would take too long. I'd probably lose track. But God is greatly interested. He's not emotionally distant and he's not uninvolved. Um, and God is always working in your life to accomplish his purposes, whether you see it or not. You know, God is always working things together for good for his children. But I think just two examples that really show how God is always working in your life to accomplish his purposes, whether you see it or not, are the examples of Jacob and Joseph. Like, Jacob's life was miserable for most of his life, from what I see. I think um, he may have been happy for the seven years working for Rachel, because they went by quickly, but like, Joseph's life, Jacob's life was like trial after trial after trial, and like famine, and you're favorite child dying, or so you thought. And um, just a lot of pain happening, and he probably didn't see why. But then, towards the end of his life, you know, he gets to see why. Why did this famine happen? Why was I separated from my son for so long? Because God has a bigger plan. It, it, didn't, it probably didn't look like God was working in Jacob's life. Like, I'm just sitting here, I'm doing nothing, there's a famine. I'm not becoming a nation very quickly, even though I do have a lot of kids, you know. <laughs> probably didn't look like God was doing much. The same can be said for Joseph. Like, you know, sold into slavery, eh, things are going well, put in prison. Doesn't really look like God's doing much, but God is working. God is working. I think John Piper said that God, in your life at any given moment, God is working in like a thousand ways, but you probably only see two of them. And we, we see that throughout the scriptures that God is always working in people's lives in more ways than they can see. And it's, it's just the fact.
So don't think that God is distant or uninvolved in your life. He's not. All right. Um, Conclusion. So the biggest recurring theme in all this is that God's legal standard has already been met. God's standard, his demand for perfection has been met in Christ. God is pleased with you today if you're a Christian because of Christ. God doesn't demand for you to be perfect. He doesn't get upset or disappointed when you're not perfect because Christ's perfection has been applied to you. Every time you struggle with God's mad at me because I'm or disappointed because I'm not perfect, you need to think of Christ every time. Because it's going to come up a lot. Because that's at the core of a lot of issues in our thinking. Uh, second conclusion. Don't let fear of God's love, don't let fear of being loved get in the way. It sounds silly, but it's a thing we struggle with. It's kind of, it's something I've struggled with. Um, Not fear of being loved, fear of believing you're loved. It's kind of like, well, I'd rather put extra doubt on it just to be safe. Because I would hate to believe someone loves me and then find out they don't. So I'm just going to have like a really ridiculously high standard because my, my doubt protects me from being disappointed. That's an easy thing to subconsciously believe, but it's not worth it. And it, can, it will like ruin your emotional life. And it will totally keep you from growing in any sort of spiritual intimacy with God. And lastly, um, you know, this, this is worth fighting for. Knowing God's love is worth fighting for. These thoughts, we all have thoughts like these. They're annoying to fight against. Fighting against sin can be annoying sometimes, but this is worth fighting for. If you struggle with these, you should re-listen to the sermon and take notes on the things you particularly struggle with. All right, so it's 1024. I really wanted to have a question and answer last time, and also this time, but... These just keep getting too long. So here's what we're going to do. Also, I would like to know if there's any objections, any struggles that people have that I didn't cover or that I could have covered better. So if you have a question you would like answered about anything we talked about today, or if you have anything you wish I talked about, I would like to bring it up next time, but it'll be confidential. I'm not going to mention like who said this to me. But please, like... Facebook message me or text me or email me at josiah at gcfdane.org. Anyways, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come here to learn about you. We thank you for your great love for us that's unceasing, unwavering, and unending and unmerited. But you love us beyond what we could ever imagine. We pray that you would help us to see that and taste that and enjoy that. We pray that it would affect our daily lives and change us at the core of who we are as people, Lord. We pray that we would come to get to know you deeper and we would worship you um, in spirit and in truth and close intimacy and an enjoyment of who you are. And we thank you for your grace and amen.